0: This is our Rebuild series. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. We're, we're, in fact, wrapping this section of the book up, heading into a brand new teaching series, as you see through that little brochure in your bulletin. Um, the book of Nehemiah can be divided up into two parts. The first seven chapters deal with the rebuilding of the wall. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment for those of you that haven't been with us to kind of bring you up to speed and then the second part of the book of Nehemiah, chapters uh, 8 to 13, have to do with revival, reviving. And so uh, at the end of this teaching series that we'll be doing starting Easter, let me kind of walk you through this, Doubts and Answers. There's a lot of people that defect from the faith because they don't have answers to their doubts. They don't work through those doubts appropriately. They defect because they are disillusioned by the pressures of life or they are deceived by the pleasures of life. And so it's really important that not only do you know what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Otherwise, the the why... Uh, will be undermined if you don't, or the what will be undermined if you don't know the why. You don't have a good foundation for your faith, and this will help to build a good solid foundation for your faith. Uh, Here's some of the questions we'll be looking at through this teaching series. Uh, Obviously, uh, Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, did Jesus rise from the dead? We're going to look at that, that it is not just a historical fact, it's evidential, it's historical, but it can be a daily experience. What does that mean? And then from that point on, we'll look at, is the Bible reliable? Is Jesus the only way? Why does God allow suffering? Can a loving God send people to hell? Isn't Christianity a straitjacket? And isn't Christianity just another religion? And why? what should I do with my doubts? That's where we're headed. And then at the end of that, we will pick up the book of Nehemiah where we leave off today and really look at how God wants to ignite our passion for him because there's some really phenomenal things that begin to take place from this point on. So as we wrap up here, book of Nehemiah chapter 7. Let me bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us or you have been sleeping through this series. Here we go. Nehemiah was what? A cupbearer for the king. You see, uh, the nation of Israel had been conquered and scattered throughout the ancient world about 140 years earlier. Many of them drug off as exiles in other countries. And so, Nehemiah being the cupbearer of the king, he hears word of, there's been several attempts of people returning back to the land of promise. But they've been unsuccessful in rebuilding the wall. They've had two rebuilding efforts in the last 90 years. Unsuccessful. It breaks his heart over the brokenness of his people. And so he's able to go back, rally the troops, and begin to rebuild the wall. And in fact, as we saw last week, they get it done in 52 days. Pretty phenomenal. Now... In looking at this book, as it relates to rebuilding, it is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament principle of when we give our lives to Jesus, He rebuilds our lives. And it is absolutely amazing what God can do with our brokenness when we give Him all the pieces. But he, he does more than just put all the pieces of our lives back together again. Not only is this a picture, Old Testament picture of the New Testament principle of our the rebuilding process that we're on through the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also speaks of the fullness of life that we have in him, the return to the land of promise, milk and honey, milk, strength, honey, satisfaction, yeah, there's not a better life on this planet Earth than the life that comes as a byproduct of of knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, enjoying Him. So it gives us that picture also. In fact, as you've heard me say many times before, the privileges we have in the Christian life are so stunning that they surpass all of the accolades, the achievements, the acquisitions this world could ever offer. So it gives us a, a picture of those two principles, rebuild, and then the fullness of life we have in Jesus Christ. Now last week we talked about, we're kind of wrapping up this part of it, and I talked about how I want all of us, and as your pastor, I want you to finish strong in your Christian faith. So I've seen so many people defect, fall away, Fall by the wayside, not finish strong. My desire for you is to finish strong. We talked about stamina last week. You can download that message and listen to it. And this week we're talking about momentum. These two topics are the different sides of the same coin of finishing strong. And you'll see if you listen to last week's message and then combine it with this week's message, it will really give you the tools to be able to do that. Now, let's talk about momentum. Anybody, have you been watching the uh, March Madness? Anybody, show of hands, show of hands, March Madness. Okay, there's like three of us in the house, March Madness. How many uh, don't even know what March Madness represents? Show of hands. Okay, wake up and smell the coffee. Uh, March Madness, how many know what it is but don't really give a rip? Look at you. Well, that pretty much wrecks that illustration. <laughs> no, I'm going to use it anyway, okay? So March Madness is this, where they got, where they got all these teams, these college teams, and they, they, through the month of March, they play single elimination all the way to, and I, I, apparently, I guess, Arizona's in the Sweet 16. Woo! Let's all three of us celebrate that. Woo! Okay. So Arizona... Wait, I'm, for a- I'm an ASU guy, though. Oh. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Uh, you guys are sitting right in front of somebody that's a real ASU fan there. Back there, you uh, Arizona folks there. You better be careful. When we're going to start a fight right here in the... Okay, where was I going with that story anyway? Okay, so March Madness. What's interesting, and when you watch basketball, if you're a basketball fan, probably not this year. The suns were pathetic. But anyway... Um, but there's this momentum. And once the team gets that momentum, they want to hang on to the momentum. And how does the opposing team kind of stop that momentum? What do they do? They will take a timeout to try to cool them down. And it's, it's pretty exciting to watch the momentum swing within these team sports. It can be football. It can be basketball. Uh, any number of, of things. And as you watch that, and I'll, I'll never forget this, though. Uh, I was watching my son Ryan. He was playing basketball. He was playing for Northwest. And uh, we've got a number of uh, students and also teachers that attend here from Northwest. And uh, he was attending there, and we were playing one of their rivals, I guess, Phoenix Christian. And they were just really working Phoenix Christian over. I was up, on the, up in the stands, and it was a Phoenix Christian. And I was just like, yeah, whoa, 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 that's awesome. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, as they're really giving Phoenix Christian a spanking, I saw the coach call a timeout. And he gathered the guys, and then what? What is going on here? And all of a sudden, I realized they were, they were what? You don't do that. That's crazy. They were sitting on their lead. It was almost like a globetrotter kind of a thing. He says, oh, just pass the ball around. Let's just kill time. (laughs) That's dumb. And that team, Phoenix Christian, came all the way back and almost beat them. They were scrambling with their lives hanging in the balance. Oh, trying to, well, it wasn't that much. But, uh, but they were, uh, they just barely beat them. Because they did what? Because they, they had a good lead. They had the momentum. They gave it up because they tried to sit on their lead. Here's my point. You got to get this as it relates to the Christian life. Here's a big warning. If you sit on your spiritual lead, the, the, the Christian life is a phenomenal life. But if you sit on your spiritual lead, a momentum swing is inevitable. You have an adversary, he's coming after you. We live in a culture, a society that's that's the antithesis of the Christian life. And then you, you you're dealing with your own sinful nature. There is no status quo in the Christian life. You're either going forward or going back. Momentum is sustained forward progress. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's go once again before the throne of grace. Father God, the process of change and growth that that occurs in us as we we come to recognize and confess our brokenness and, and embrace by faith our new identity in your Son, our Savior, and strive to live in obedience through the freedom that comes when Christ reigns in our hearts is the fullness of life that you invite us to. And you give this to us by your amazing grace. God, as we study the very words from your mouth, teach us, touch us, transform our lives to sustain this forward progress for your glory in our satisfaction in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Let's take a look at this. Now, uh, unlike what I typically do is I'll read the text completely. Not going to do that this morning. We're going to just read uh, a couple verses, then we'll talk about it, read a couple verses, talk about it. That's how we're going to work through the text. Keep your Bibles open. And how to maintain momentum if you want to hold on to what you've gained. Here's what we've got to do. We go back to chapter 6. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. And we studied this in depth last week. it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Now you'll notice not much fanfare, no marching bands, no fireworks, no balloons released, We talked about that last week, and then verse 16, And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. here's, Here's what I think that we can understand from this, and here's the first point. If you want to maintain the momentum in your life, you need to stay genuinely humble. And we see this in Nehemiah's life. We not only see it in this text because Nehemiah doesn't, you know, celebrate this and he says, now watch my infomercial and I'm going to teach you how to build a wall too in less than 52 days and I'm going to be signing books at this big whatever. He doesn't do that. It's not about Nehemiah. It's all about God. And not only that, you see it throughout the first seven chapters. You see prayer. It's prayer saturated. Seven times in seven chapters. And, and so Nehemiah puts on display an attitude of, of dependence and giving credit to God. He makes it very clear, it, it isn't about him, it's all about God, it's about making much of God, and so he's teaching us here how to stay genuinely humble. Now it tells us in James 4, 6, just to show you how important this is, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So to me, that sounds, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a rough verse, I mean what that's saying is that if you want God to be against you, all you need to do is be proud and and by the way, that's all of us. We come into this world pretty proud. That's our sinful nature. That's the essence of of our sinful nature is just be proud. If you want God to oppose you, be proud. But if you want the grace of God, be humble. The grace of God could be defined as God's empowering presence in our life, enabling us to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do. If you want the presence of God, if you want the approval of God, it comes to people who are humble. But if you want God to oppose you, be proud. So what does it mean to be proud? Well, it means to be self-centered. It means to be self, self-absorbed. self Pride is, is self absorption by the way this is what's interesting is that and this is why one of the many reasons why i'm a christian and we'll get into a lot of these things over the next eight weeks as we go through this new teaching series and really as we look at the foundation of our faith this is what's so so wild about the christian faith it's it's so different from every other religion a lot of people will say well it's just like every other religion no it isn't see every other religion will say this the good are in the bad are out if you meet our standard you're in you're one of us If you can't, you're out. And they all have standards. But doesn't Christianity have a standard? Yeah, yeah, it's right here. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That's his standard. That's his standard. See, all you need is need if you want to come to Christ and experience his grace. But many of us don't even have that because we're too proud. We're too self-absorbed. We think we can do it on our own. See, see uh, the Bible says, God says, Christianity says, the humble are in, the proud are out. You see the difference? Major difference. And so, so pride means to be self, self-absorbed. And that's, that's pretty easy to do in our society because we're pretty self-absorbed society, especially Americans. We make it all about us. It's all about us. And self-absorption can be seen actually not only just in success, but also in, in suffering. It can be seen in success and suffering, both in, in, in boasting. Success, what do we do? We, we boast, you know, in the sense that, hey, I deserve admiration because of what I've accomplished. Look at me. Look how great I am. Woo-hoo. Well, I, and if you've ever been around someone uh, that that's all they want to do is talk about me. Let's talk about me. That's my favorite topic. And if you've been around people like that, you can't even get a word in edgewise because immediately they'll turn and be self-referencing right back to themselves. It's really kind of crazy, but, but I am too and you are too and we all tend to do that. We tend to make it about ourselves and, and, we, and we boast about what we've done and what we've accomplished and that's very much what the Bible says. That's, that's self-absorption, but it can also be seen in our self-pity in suffering. Hey, I deserve admiration because of what I've suffered. Self-pity. That's self-absorption too. So it's about being self-absorbed, whether it be boasting about what you've accomplished or boasting about what you've suffered. It's all about you. In fact, let me give you the next fill in the blank. C.S. Lewis gives us this statement. So staying genuinely humbled, humbled, it is not thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. So it's not like it's a low view of yourself. You just don't think of yourself. C.S. Lewis also said, and he defined pride as the unsmiling concentration on self, which is the mark of hell. So how do, you, how do you become humble? Well, you can't find it by direct pursuit. In fact, what's interesting about it, it's kind of crazy because if you think you're humble and you tell everybody you're humble, well, you're not. Okay. But it usually begins to take place in your life when you begin to recognize your pride. And the more you begin to recognize that, man, I'm a very proud person, then you're beginning on the road to humility. But the minute that you say, well, now I'm humble. No, you're not. You just slid back. And so it can't be found by direct pursuit, but it comes as a byproduct. Is next uh, fill in the blank on your notes. It is a byproduct of being entranced with the greatness and the goodness of God is being entranced with the greatness and goodness of God because you, you get a glimpse of his beauty and his glory and wow, you can't think of a more boring topic than you. You want to talk about him, you want to think about him, you want to make much of him. The focus goes off of you and immediately goes to him. Once you've seen his greatness and his goodness, nothing compares, nothing competes to his transcendence, and His eminence, to His power, to His being personal with us. read a quote this last week from Keller. It was on a tweet that he sent out, and it says, Tim Keller, he says, The gospel makes you others-directed because you already have your treasure. So you become others-directed because you already have all that you want in His greatness and His goodness. One of the things that we enjoy doing every summer... And uh, we enjoy going to San Diego. We hang out in Oceanside, take the family down there. It's a lot of fun. Usually when it's about 150 degrees here, usually in July and August, it's the time we like to head over there. This is not a good time to head to San Diego because our weather is way too good. You guys enjoying the weather here? It's great. This is a great time of the year. How many are having allergy problems? Oh, all of you. So I'm kind of medicated this morning, so you know no telling what I'm going to say. And so I've got that... uh, allergy medication going. It's kind of kind of sedating me, but boy, it kept my nose running from running like a faucet, but it's just, it's crazy, and I don't know why I even went that direction with what I was saying, but uh, just hang in there with me. I think it's the medication working this morning. I just followed another rabbit there, and uh, so we go to San Diego, and one of the things that we enjoy doing in San Diego, well, wow, that was really a crazy rabbit there, wasn't it? Is that we uh, with our kids and then our grandkids now? Is that I enjoy watching our kids with our grandkids on the beach and those grandkids have never seen the ocean before, and so when those kids go out there, they're they're almost kind of mesmerized. They want to run out there, but what will happen with little little midget demons if they run out there? That that water will grab a hold of them and knock them down and then drag them back out. It's it's pretty frightening. So being a ex firefighter, I'm like paranoid. Where's the kids? Where's the kids? Keep your eyes on them. I'm watching them. Okay, oh, 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 oh. come on. Everybody help me out. But it's really interesting. There's, there have been a few times when their daddies will take their, uh, I've got six grandsons, so they'll take the older boys out there. And, and they'll, the older boys think they're, they're, they want to be independent. It's like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I want to go out there and play. And we know that you leave them alone, they're going to get drugged down and drug out into the ocean. But dad stays by. And sure enough, that wave comes up, knocks the little guy down. He's like, and what does dad do? Dad swoops him up, man. Boom. Swoops him right up into his arms. And what does that little boy do? Does he brag? No, he clings. He clings. And it's it's really an interesting picture. And it's an interesting picture for me of what happens when we encounter Jesus. And we begin to see his greatness and goodness. and, And in light of our our dire condition apart from him. And, and in fact, when a helpless child is being swept off of his feet by the undercurrent on the beach and his father sweeps him up just in time, he doesn't boast, he hugs, he clings. Why does he do that? Because he knows that his daddy is big enough, that speaks of his greatness, he's big enough to save me, but he also knows that his daddy loves him enough, that's his goodness, to want to save him. So, so I, how do you become humble? It's not by direct pursuit, but man, when you are, when you are entranced with the, with the greatness of God, God, you're big enough. You're big enough to save me. You're big enough to take care of all my issues. I don't know why I was freaking out over this, but God, I just need to come back to you. I know that you're, you're there to swoop me back up. When the waves of life pound against me and want to drag me off, God, you're there. You're there to pick me back up and hold me close. And I'm I'm not going to boast about me. I'm going to boast about him, and I'm going to cling to him because he's strong enough, and he's loving enough to do that for me. See, and that's a picture of humility. When you begin to understand your dire condition apart from Jesus, plus the magnitude of his provision and how he sweeps us up in his arms of love and holds us close, well, that eliminates the pride, the self-absorption. Your life becomes about His greatness and goodness and making, making much of Him. Here's the next one. Let's read verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 7. So the first one is how to maintain momentum, stay genuinely humble. And then chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers. So, okay, we've got gatekeepers. These are uh, leaders of the neighborhoods. So you got gatekeepers. Oh, and then they got singers. Singers? Who said we had to have singers? What's that about? They're gonna, they're gonna assemble. There's gonna be a gathering. They're gonna have church. That's what they're gonna do. We got the walls built. We're gonna get together. We're gonna gather regularly. We're gonna have singers. They're gonna lead us in worship. So we can make much of God. Oh, and then the Levites, those are the pastors. Had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Check this out. Here's his characteristics, and this really represents all the characteristics of these leaders and, and should represent the characteristics of the people too. For he was more faithful and God fearing man than many. So this kind of brings us to the next point, and this, this really goes along with humility. If you're a God fear, if you fear God, fearing God is the beginning of what? It's wisdom. You're not even on the board. You're not even at first base. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. You're beginning to see life more from a, an eternal and a, and a God perspective. And, and this is what the fear of God is. The fear of God is a, is a joyful awe and wonder of the, of the beauty and the glory, of the greatness and the goodness of God that ruins you for anything else. These were God fears, people that had a fear of God, a sense of awe and wonder, a joyful awe and wonder of God. And so that brings us to the next point in in what we need more than anything. They're going to be doing church. They're going to be gathering regularly. We need to surround ourselves with people who stir up our appetite for God. They're going to be gathering. They're going to be encouraging one another. They're going to be making much of God So we need to surround ourselves with people who stir up our appetite for God. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, it says, Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. So when you came into church today, based on what this says, it says that this is what you should have been going through your head. It's not about you. It's that you're captivated by the greatness and goodness of God. And so you want to begin to, how can I stir up an appetite for the folks that are in my life, that are sitting around me, the people that I go out uh, with lunch after service? How can I stir up, consider how we may stir one another up to love and good deeds? And it says, not neglecting to meet together. So it's saying, hey, we need to hang out together regularly, consistently, week in and week out, not only in the large group setting, but also in a smaller group setting. As some are in the habit of doing. He says, some are in the habit of doing. It's not good. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? What day is drawing near? Jesus is coming back. But also the day that's drawing near. Hey, listen to me. The day that's drawing near is you're going to die. At the end of the day, go to the calendar. Just mark that off. You can never repeat that day again. It's over. That's one less day. One less day you're going to have on this planet Earth. So as you see the day approaching, one less day, one less day, one less day, one less day. Encourage one another. Stir up. Be around people that will stir up a greater appetite for God. Because that's what you need more than anything. That's what we need. We need people that will help us to see the greatness and the goodness of God more clearly Look at your next couple fill-in-the-blanks. Faith is not just an agreement with facts in the head, but an appetite for God in the heart. Faith is not just an agreement with facts in the head, but an appetite for God in the heart. Christ appeals to our minds. This is what you're going to find interesting in this next series. You're going to see that Christianity is, is intellectually sound. He appeals to our minds. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind. But he's also existentially compelling, moving, stirring. He's heart satisfying. He's head sound, heart satisfying. That's what we find about the gospel. He stirs up. There's a stirring up of our heart and our appetite for God. Christ appeals to our minds with his greatness and fills our hearts with his goodness. So, what is your greatest need? Your greatest need is what I try to meet every week, week in and week out. What is your greatest need every day? I'll tell you what your greatest need is. Why in the world are you overwhelmed by the trials and the trauma of life? Why does that get the best of us? Because we are not seeing the greatness of God. Why do I easily succumb or allure to the temptations of life? Because I'm living out of touch with the goodness of God. When you are entranced by the greatness and goodness of God, no trial can overwhelm you, no temptation can allure you. So the best thing that your friends can do for you, the best thing I can do for you week in and week out, is not make much of me or to make much of you, but to make much of him so that you can begin to see him more clearly then it's game over when it comes to the trials or the temptations. You have your treasure. It's in Him. It's amazing. It's amazing. Here's the next point on your notes Who are the people in your life that stir up, that you stir up and stir you up? Who are the people in your life that you stir up and stir you up? I was asking my wife this last week. I said, So, uh, as I was thinking about it, I said, Who are the people in your life that stir you up? She named a bunch of people, and I was thinking, I wonder why I'm not on the list. And so, it took me a couple days, and then I asked her, did I stir up your appetite for God? You know, I kind of went, okay, go ahead. And she goes, yeah, yeah, when you're preaching, you stir up my appetite for God. Of course, you know, I became (laughs) self-absorbed. And I go, I was thinking to myself, I didn't ask her this, but I wanted to ask her this. It's like, are there any other times? I mean, I just don't want to do it when I'm preaching. You probably wouldn't put up with me preaching at you all the time, would you? No, she probably wouldn't. But she said, that stirs, stirs me up. I, this is what, what I began to think about. I said, I thought about my wife. I love her dearly. Man, I'll I tell you what, I, I, I married way over my head. You guys know that, okay? And, uh, man, I want, I want so badly to stir up her appetite for God. And I probably do a better job stirring your appetites more than hers. And so that, shame on me. And I need to, not shame on me. I mean, I just, I just need to look at that. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for all my guilt and shame. It just a, just gives me a chance to look at my own life to make sure that I'm covering the home front. That's really important for me. That's important for you too. I shouldn't be being out trying to save the world and lose my own wife and family. That's, you don't do that. My first ministry is to my wife and to my family to my kids. And then out of that overflow, I want to minister to the folks here. So, so created this within me, I began to really take a look at my own life. I want to stir up her appetite. I want to stir up my, my kids and my grandkids' appetite for God because that's what they need more than anything. That's what will get them through life, is to have this big high view of the greatness of God and the goodness of God. That will give them the balance that they need as they work through the issues. And uh, so what are the, who are the people in your life? I'll bet you that there are people in your life that drain the living daylights out of you. And you need to be able to know that. And so that just means that you need to spend, there's nothing wrong with hanging out. Maybe you're their one to stir up. And so that's what you need to focus on. But man, make sure that you go to people who can stir that appetite up within you. So you need to have that balance within your life. Now, as it relates to church, this is what I oftentimes will tell people as they're looking for church. Uh, what are the characteristics that you need to look for when you're looking for a good church? Well, there's a number of things. One would be, obviously, you want to look for their statement of faith. What is their statement of faith? And by the way, just because it's on their website doesn't necessarily mean that they're always teaching that and they're adhering to it. But you need to kind of follow up and see if they're they really living this stuff. So their statement of faith. You also look at their strategy. Because there's a lot of churches say that they're making disciples, but really in the true sense, it's not a really a comprehensive disciple-making kind of process. And so, so... Statement of faith, strategy, are they making disciples? And then the next one would be, uh, would be structure. What kind of church government do they have? But here's one, though, that would go on that list of, I guess, all S words is, is this a place that really stirs up my appetite for God? See, that's, that's what you want. You want a church that when you walk out, that you are just, maybe you walked in empty. And if, and if you do, I, I, I would say, hey, you come, come to Desert Breeze. You come, if you come empty, you're worn out, you're beat up. This is the place to come and, and to drink from the well of water that will bring satisfaction to your soul unlike anything else. See, that's, that's my heart desire, that you would come in here and you'd just be filled up and your heart would be stirred up for God. And I want to do that with everybody that I'm around. And uh, not just my family, but but my church family and the people I hang out with and my neighbors, that, that somehow in the way that I live my life, I would stir up greater appetite within them for God. And I put this down. This is a quote uh, from a book that I've been reading here recently. And the, the guy said here, any church that doesn't have as its primary focus, and I, I added my own words to it. So here's how I would put the primary focus. The primary focus of stirring up appetites for God that is consistent with God's Word, that is in spirit and in truth, no matter how zealously it seeks conversions or advocates moral behavior or social justice, is not a healthy gospel-centered church. I know a lot of churches that they're saying, we're reaching the lost. Woo! Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you are. And, and yeah, we're a worship church here. We really worship God. woo I'm glad you are. That's great. And... Those are all fine, but the most important thing that we need is a church that stirs up our appetite for God. And then out of that, you'll be the kind of worshiping people. You'll have the outreach programs that you need. When you begin to see and you're entranced by His greatness and His His goodness. So let's practice this this morning real quick. I want you to turn to the folks next to you, and um, I'm going to ask you two questions And uh, here's the question, here's the question, ask, see if this person knows this, what is the measure of God's love for us, and what is the measure of God's power working in us? Now let me, hint, 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 let me give you a hint, this is Holy Week, today's Palm Sunday, what's this next Friday? It's Good Friday. Something happened there. And the next Sunday is Easter. Something happened there. That kind of, okay, I, I probably gave the answer. Two answers away. Real quick. So what is God's, what is the measure, the measure of God's uh, love for us? What is the measure? How do we measure it? How do we get our, our minds around it and experience it? What is the measure of his power working in our lives? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay. Do we need to get the ushers for this guy right up here, over here somewhere? <laughs> we got someone's a little combative over here. Okay, so tell me, what is the measure of God's love for us? Yell it out to me. The cross. Did you guys say cross? It's the cross. Good Friday, the cross. Oh my goodness. Do you know? Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea how much he loves you? He is crazy about you. That he would leave heaven and come to earth, become a servant, and die on the cross for you. To bring you across this chasm, this eternal chasm that separated you from the Father. He did that for you. You want to know how much he loves you? And see, when I think and reflect on the cross, you come this uh, Friday, we're going to think and reflect on the cross. We're going to let that love go from our head down into our heart so that our hearts are ravished. Oh my goodness, that when, that, when your heart is stirred up like that and you begin to see the measure of his, his love for you. So what's the measure of, of his power working in our lives? What is it? The resurrection. Anybody, how many said resurrection? Okay, there's, there's two of us in here. Okay, let me. Next weekend is the resurrection. Let's think about this. This is what it tells us in the eighth chapter of Romans, verse 11. This is so cool. This is amazing. If the Spirit... That raised Christ from the dead Dwells in you Yeah, yeah, yeah He will make alive your mortal bodies Basically that's what he says He just says Oh my goodness You have the spirit of God Who raised Christ from the dead And he dwells in you To empower you How much does he love you? The cross How much is is his power working in our behalf In our lives and through our lives? The resurrection Resurrection power See, that's what we need to have stirred up within our hearts and lives. That's that's the greatness of God. The goodness of God is the cross. We see that. We see also the the justice of God, the holiness of God in that. But also in the resurrection, we see the power of God. His power, His strength working in our behalf. Let's look at verses 3 through 4 as we continue reading. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem... So he's kind of assembled the team, they're going to have some gatherings, they're going to get together, and now he's going to really secure the gates and secure the walls. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. So let's not open these gates up too early, we still have enemies out there, that's what he's saying here. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Here's your next uh, point on your notes. Be on your guard against potential problems. So if we are going to maintain momentum, we're going to have that kick at the end of the race, we're going to go strong for Jesus, We need to stay genuinely humble, surround ourselves with people who stir up our appetite for God, and then we need to be on our guard against potential problems. What do we need to guard? So this is a picture of what, as individuals, as Christians, what do we need to guard about our lives? What does the Bible say that we need to guard? What is it? Our hearts. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It is the direction in which you will go. I've got that on your notes there. It's Proverbs 4.23. The Bible uses the word heart some 900 times. And, uh, and so it's pretty important. And it talks about, when, you, when it uses the word heart, it's talking about our our mind, our emotions, and our will. But it's actually talking about something that goes even deeper than that, and that's the things that we treasure, the things that are most important to us. In fact, um, Take a look at your next fill in the blank. So we're going to... Oh, let me... Before you do that, let me see. Did you already put that up there? No, not yet. So here's, here's the deal. So when we guard our hearts, what are we guarding our hearts against? We're guarding our hearts against our affections being drawn away to something in creation more than the Creator. The root of all of our sins is having greater affection for something in this world as opposed to the creator of this world. If you were to look deep into the sins that we commit, it's because of, it's, that's idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, the first of the top ten. When we violate that one, we violate that one to, anytime you've violated two through ten, it's because you have first and foremost violated the very first one because you have another God before you. There's something that you're more excited about that dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, and moves you to action. In fact, that's your fill in the blanks. That's the next one. So how do I identify my idols? What dominates my thoughts, stirs my deepest feelings, and moves my actions? Why do I do what I do? Is it about you or is it about God? That's how you identify your idols. Now, quick story here. Two guys lose lose their jobs due to an unfair action by their boss. One guy gets over it. He goes and finds another job, does well. He's successful. The other guy is angry. He becomes bitter. He is cynical. And then his whole future career path is greatly affected why because what his boss did and said to him carries more glory and weight than what christ says and has done for us on the cross that's idolatry so if i follow the trail of my inordinate emotions that tells me a lot about my idolatry See idols idols can be they can be the pursuit of bad things but they can also be the pursuit of good things that have become god things in our lives uh, families are good things but never to be a god thing or career good not to be a god thing or keeping yourself physically fit that's good not to be a god thing But see, how do we know that they become God things? Because when those things that we we put so much of our heart into, they dominate our thoughts, they stir our deepest emotions, and they move us to action. It's kind of our whole life is kind of directed towards those things. And it could be multiple things in our lives, not just one or two things. It could be many things in our lives. But you really don't know that you have an idol until that idol is being threatened, blocked, or lost. And then there goes your emotional state. Off the meter. So if you follow your emotions, why am I so angry? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so depressed? It's because you have given your heart to something that's temporal and it's being threatened, blocked, or lost. So you just, you follow that. So what is it that dominates my thoughts, stirs my deepest feelings, and moves me to actions? So how do I overcome that? Here's the next question. Is Jesus becoming my treasure worth giving up everything for? Is Jesus becoming my treasure? So so it's really what's below what is below the thoughts Feelings and actions. It's something that you treasure. Treasure means that you fill your mind with the beauty and the value of of something. You're telling yourself that if I have this, if I achieve this, if I accomplish that, then my life will have meaning and purpose. And if it's not Jesus, it's an idol. And it will rip you off. It will rip you off. I mean, you will... It will devastate your life because, uh, let's say for your family, if it's based on your family, how your family turns out, how your kids grow up and what they do. But what if they go off the rails? What if they go south? I mean, and and not only that. Okay, so they've met that standard, but even if they do meet the standard that you want them to, to live, it's still never satisfying. Because, see, idols are unforgiving and ultimately unfulfilling even when you do get them. Only Jesus can forgive you when you fail him and fulfill you when you get him. It's only in him. So he's the treasure of our lives. When you make him the treasure, and when you recognize that your heart is being chased and following after these things, it's during those moments you have to say, hey, wait, 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 that, that's not my life. Jesus, you're my life. I'm getting a little excited right now. I, I think they're going to have some layoffs at work, and I'm really anxious, and I'm not, I'm not, wow, I'm not getting much sleep. And I'm, what, 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 what's going on there? You put too much trust in your job. Your trust needs to go in your treasure, Jesus. He needs to be the one that you treasure. So you need to spend a considerable amount of time just filling your mind with the beauty and the value of who Jesus is. You need to be entranced with the greatness and the goodness of God. That's, That's your answer. So it's in that. And so affections for idols are overcome by greater and more enchanting affections for the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you are mesmerized and marvel in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more sin looks cheap, shoddy, and unattractive. So let's take us to the next one, verse 5, back to our text. And so, so far we're kind of building this case, how to maintain momentum, stay genuinely humble, surround yourself with people, stir up your appetite for God, be on your guard against potential problems, potential problems that your heart would chase after, you know, and you'd fall in love with something other than Jesus. That's, that's what you need to guard against. And so here's the next one, verse 5. He says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I, and I found written in it, and we're not going to read the rest of this. It just goes through lists of names and legacy and people and families and all the people that participated in this rebuilding effort. And so in verses 6 through 69 is the accounting of the people who built the wall. What's the point? Why would this be in the Bible? Here's the point. God recognizes, records, and remembers every step of faith we take. He knows. He knows your struggle. He knows your heart. He knows when you take a step towards Him. He knows when your heart is open to Him. Here's the next point. So if you're going to maintain momentum, you must take regular inventory of your progress. You must take regular inventory of your progress. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Can it, so, okay, uh, am I in the faith? Am I in the faith? Test yourselves. Now, check this out. This is what he says. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? <laughs> That's crazy. What? Jesus Christ is in me? Yeah, don't you realize that? Don't you realize that when you put your faith in, in Jesus, his Holy Spirit came to dwell within you, in, in your body. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he says, test yourself. So um, Francis Chan wrote a book, Forgotten God, a really interesting thing that he said in there. He said, don't you think that people who have put their faith in Jesus and now they have, that their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you think that those people should be quite differently in how they live their life than those that don't have their bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit? That makes sense, doesn't it? shouldn't, Shouldn't there be a major difference? And yet he goes on in that book, he says, well, there's not really much difference in many Christians' lives. And then he goes on and kind of uses a silly illustration. He calls it silly. I didn't. I thought it was actually a good illustration, but he calls it a silly illustration. And he says, imagine I told you that I had an encounter with God and he came to to live in my body. And he gave me supernatural ability to play basketball. Wouldn't you expect that my jump shot and my defense and my kind of dribbling skills, my ball handling skills would increase substantially? I guess it all depends on the raw material he has to work with. Some of us it wouldn't take much for us to look good, would it? But but the point is, the point is you have the Holy Spirit living within you. If the spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. He loves you so much. He's placed his Holy Spirit within you. So what you've got to do is learn, learn to be sensitive to his voice. You don't need to hear an audible voice. He'll speak right to your mind, to your heart. He lives within you. He will transform your life. That's amazing. That's what we need. So you take regular inventory. So what do you, what do you look for? This is what I've looked for through the years. Is my reaction in recovery time decreasing? That's the next fill in the blank. Is your reaction recovery time decreasing? You guys know what I'm talking about? I teach this in the game of life. When my wife and I first got married, we had terrible reaction recovery time, okay? I mean, we get into a a fight. We get into a conflict that turned into combat, and I'm sleeping on the couch for two weeks, man. I mean, that's what it it seemed like. And it was just, it was bad. It took us, it would take us a couple weeks to get over those things. And so what we found out is that in time, because we begin to realize the measure of God's love, the cross. The measure of God's power, resurrection power working within us. We begin to realize that more and more. There began to be a decrease in our reaction recovery time. Now, some 37, six years later in our relationship, we don't even go there. There's no reaction recovery time. We stop it before it happens. See, I know when I'm in the doghouse, even before I get there. So, uh, so I kind of recognize that. Oh, I'm walking on eggshells here. Let's talk about this. Let's work through this. Let's... So we, there's none of this reaction, and then it takes us a long time. Same thing's true about your spending habits or any other area of your life. You, you mess up, you get back up, you keep going. How's your reaction recovery time? See, when you're walking with Jesus, so that's what you look at. Are you in the faith? Do you remember that Jesus lives within you? So there should be this decreasing of your reaction, reaction and recovery time. Here's the next point in your notes. Are you learning to apply the truth of God specific to where your heart is most restless? So as you, as you load up your arsenal on verses and scriptures and spending time with God, so when you're in the heat of the battle, do you have something to draw on to say, hey, wait, 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 he was talking about the measure of his love, and I'm kind of acting like and living like a person that's not really loved by Jesus. My response to this person, I mean, I took that criticism pretty personally, and I was defensive. What's up with that? Because that doesn't demonstrate someone who really has the love of God deep within their heart. So are you able to take the truth of God and here's the truth of God. If you were to hear God speak to you today and every day, I will guarantee you based on the authority of God's word, this is what you need to be hearing. And too often, I think a lot of us are hearing some other message and it's certainly not coming from God. If you heard his voice this, ma- this morning and if you heard something along these lines like, uh, what's wrong with you? Try harder. You need to do more. If you're hearing those messages, those aren't coming from God. That's coming from the opposing team to drive you. Here's what you need to hear. You know I'm crazy about you. I love you. Oh, you've forgotten about how much I love you. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Oh, my power, I'm for you, not against you. You can trust my love. You know, a number of years ago when they came out with that that statement that it said, uh, what would Jesus do? That's messed up. I mean, sorry. They probably made millions of dollars on that. It's not, the question isn't what would Jesus do so I can be self-absorbed and preoccupied with my performance. Here's the question, what has Jesus done The more you're entranced with his greatness and goodness, the more it will transform your life. That's what will change you. That's what's going to reduce the the reaction recovery time is to understand who it is that walks through your day with you, who loves you more than anything, that the reality of that, and oftentimes we're not living in the reality of that. That's why we need friends that will stir up that appetite within us more for God. We need to hang out in places like here at church so that we can stir that up so I can be aware of that so that I can respond appropriately to the trauma and the trials and the difficulties and the temptations of life here's the next one in fact I'm not going to read the last uh, few in fact you can see you can read it on your own as we wrap this up verses 70 all the way to the end 73 now some of the heads of the father's Houses gave to the work. And what you're going to see here is the heads of the fathers, the heads of the families, the fathers. you got the leaders, and then you got the people. In fact, here's kind of the sequence. Notice the order of giving. Leaders, heads of families, uh, set the example, and then the rest of the people follow. Here's the fifth one. Fifth point, we wrap it up right here. Continue to make spiritual investments. That's what they're doing. They've all made spiritual investments. When you come here regularly, you're making a spiritual investment. When you read your Bible, you're making a spiritual investment. When you pray, you're making a spiritual investment. When you give faithfully, you're making a spiritual investment so that we can have an environment here that stirs up people's appetite for God, that people can come in here and be redeemed and rebuilt in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only are you building into other people's lives, you're building into your own life. And you're putting away what we we could call equity, kind of a spiritual equity. How many would agree with me that having financial equity is probably really important, like a savings account? Savings account's is pretty important because one of these days your car is going to break down. You know, your refrigerator is going to go out. There's going to be a number of things that are going to happen. And then you're going to have something to drop on. But God help you that when you don't have any kind of spiritual equity because you put God on the shelf, you did your own thing. You didn't make any spiritual investments. You're not going to have anything to draw upon. And I'm not talking about earning God's favor. I'm talking about increasing your capacity to experience more of God. And when you come to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you do these things, you're putting spiritual money in the bank. And you will have to make a withdrawal one of these days. And thank God you've got something to draw upon as he helps you to navigate through the crisis and the difficulties of life. Not only for you, but even when times are going good, you're going to have something to draw upon to help your friends through crisis. You're going to have the resources to help them to see Jesus more clearly. And so that's how we we finish strong. I gave you some verses there, Galatians 6, 7 through 10. It just talks about don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You can't break God's laws. You can break yourself against his laws. And it's not not, am I sowing, but what am I sowing? Every day I am sowing so spiritual equity can make or break you in crisis. That's your next fill in the blank. Continue to make spiritual investments. Spiritual equity can make or break you in crisis. Here's the last point. You will always reap what you sow more than you sow, later than you sow. And so when you read your Bible, you pray, you attend church, get involved in a small group, give of your time, your talents, your treasure, you're sowing spiritual seeds for the reaping and the redeeming of, and the rebuilding of people's lives for all eternity. Hey, let me, would you guys do me a favor? We've got a big week ahead of us. This is Holy Week, and uh, it's awesome. And so Friday night, come out Friday night and, and experience His love with us. But uh, invite your family and friends. We have three services, 8, nine thirty, and 11. Invite them. I'll bet you that some of your friends that are running from God... It's because they're running from this wrong concept of God. Most people that are running from God, they don't even really even understand what they're running from. And oftentimes it's the wrong concept of God. And we're going to try to help clear up some of those doubts and those things that confuse people. Maybe you have some friends that have defected from the faith. And maybe it's because of some of these questions. We're going to deal with these head on uh, in the coming weeks. I'm excited about this new series. And so make sure you bring your family and friends. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? We wrap up Nehemiah today, head into this new teaching series next week. We'll return to Nehemiah in June. Let me pray. God, we uh, are excited that today is Palm Sunday and as we head into this, this very holy week, as we, we, we think and reflect, I pray that everyone here that are part of Desert Breeze that attended our services this morning, that we would begin to understand more clearly the measure of your love is the cross and the measure of your power working in and through our lives is the resurrection. And God, put someone on our heart that you would have us invite to the services next weekend. God, may we live for your glory. May we finish strong in our lives. May we stay genuinely humble, surround ourselves with people that stir up our appetite for you. God, help us to guard against those potential problems of having our hearts being drawn to anything other than you, Lord Jesus. May we take regular inventory of our progress and may we continue to make spiritual investments for your glory and our satisfaction in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.